When was the last time you received a handwritten letter? Forms of communication have changed over the years. In 1987, I was attending seminary in Texas while my fiance, now wife of over 35 years, was back in her home state of Georgia preparing for our wedding. Almost daily, we wrote and sent letters to each other by, of course, snail mail. I've kept her letters ever since. Why? Because those months were long and lonely apart from the woman I loved. Those letters have special meaning to me. What gave the letters their special meaning? As with any letter, the writer, the receiver, the circumstances, and the content determine the importance. I guarantee you that if Kay had written a, quote, Dear John letter to me, I would not have kept any of those letters. Centuries ago, a pastor was forced into exile and forced to be separated from the church that he loved, his spiritual family of Christ followers. Letters were the only form of communication and only those who have been separated from a loved one will know how precious a letter can be. We know both pastor and his church family were facing difficult circumstances, and the contents of the letter provided exactly what the churches needed to stand strong in their faith. And just as I read and reread Kay's letters while we were apart, the churches, beginning in Ephesus, would read and reread the letter from John to them and those other churches. And now, centuries later, the family of Christ is still reading and rereading those precious words because we too live in difficult days and we too need to be encouraged. This study of the book of Revelation is a study of those letters of challenge and encouragement written to a hurting and anxious church. In part one, we began the introduction with a look at the author. In part two, we will take a closer look at the recipients, their circumstances, and the content or message of the letter. All three will help us understand why Revelation is an important book to study. In the introduction, we learned about the author. The author is the Apostle John. What do we know about John? Well, first, we understand that he claimed to write the book. In Revelation 1.1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So we know that John claimed to write the book. We also know that John is the disciple that Jesus loved. That is how he identified himself in his gospel, and love was the emphasis of his epistles. John's message was that God is love and that God's love was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We learn from John and the other books of the Bible that Jesus came the first time to demonstrate God's love for the world. Now, John writes in Revelation that when we see Jesus again, He will be a holy, righteous God who will bring judgment. We also learn that John was the last living apostle of Jesus. By the mid-90s A.D., the apostle John was the only apostle still alive. He is also the only one of the apostles generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. He would naturally be respected as the only living apostle by the Christian church. We also learned that John lived his last days in exile. John was exiled to the rocky island of Patmos. Patmos, once a vibrant island under the Greeks, had fallen into decline under Roman control and eventually used as a place of exile. It was a rocky, barren island and it was in a cave where tradition holds John received his vision. We learned in Part 1 
that the Bible doesn't hide the fact that the choice to follow Jesus will come with a cost. The apostles, according to biblical and Christian tradition, faced persecution for their faith. We also understand that if you and I stand for the truth, it's going to bring persecution. If you stand for the ethics, principles, and teachings of God's Word, then you can expect somebody's going to mock you, ridicule you, or accuse you of being an intolerant religious fanatic. Now let's dig in deeper in John's letter to his beloved church family who were facing persecution. The original audience of Revelation is identified in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Originally, the book was a letter written to seven churches. The letter would be carried to each church in line and eventually be shared with other churches through time, even till today. The churches that will be revealed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches were simple groups of baptized believers who met together, typically in people's homes. In every age and in every century, there are churches like the church at Ephesus, and churches like the church at Pergamos, and Thyatira, and Philadelphia, and so on. The seven churches also represent various phases and periods in church history over the past 2,000 years. These churches, they were literal congregations, but they represent all churches and all Christians of all time. To understand this, we need to unpack the meaning of the symbol seven. Jews assigned meaning to numbers. Numerical symbols included one, which was the number of unity. God is one God. Two, the number four witness. In Jewish law, there had to be two witnesses for a fact to be true. Three, the divine number. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The number four is the number of our planet. Winds come from four directions, and there are four points on a compass. Five represents the law, the five books in the Torah. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Later, we will see the number six take on a special meaning. Seven, the number of completion or unity. Revelation 3.1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In Revelation 4.5 From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And listen to Revelation 5.6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, set out into all the earth. In those verses, we see a lot of sevens. Seven spirits, seven stars... Seven spirits of God, and once again in Revelation 5-6, seven spirits of God. 
We know that there are not seven spirits, but this is a symbolic reference to the unified and singular Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Isaiah also referenced the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit in Isaiah 11, too. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven Spirits, Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. In Zechariah 4, we also find the seven-stemmed menorah, symbolizing the presence of the Holy Spirit in the temple. In the book of Revelation, we will also encounter the seven wax seals on the scroll. Seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath are also in Revelation. There are seven new things to come that God promises at the end of Revelation. The use of seven is not by coincidence. Once again, the number seven means completion or unity. God is going to complete His work in Revelation. Now, Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. These churches symbolize the totality, the unity of all Christians everywhere as a unit. They also represent the different types of churches that exist and representatives of the eras of Christian history throughout the church age. But overall, we need to recognize that there is only one body of Christ, and that is the church. That's the audience. And what about the message of the letter? In Revelation 1-4, we recognize or we see that peace is expressed. Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. John's greeting was the standard greeting for New Testament writers. What is interesting is, it is placed on a letter that will focus on God's judgment and wrath against sin and those who practice it. As sinners, we deserve God's judgment, but as believers, we receive God's grace. Now in Revelation 1-4, we see that peace is expressed. We also learn the source of that peace. Once again, Revelation 1-4, Grace to you and peace from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. The phrase identifies God the Father as the source of peace. God the Father is the source of all blessings of salvation, all grace, and all peace. We also read in Revelation 1-4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is a reference once again to the Holy Spirit. The number depicts his fullness, seven. This number could also signify the Spirit's presence with each of the seven churches. Now let's move to Revelation 1-5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. What do we learn about Jesus? First, he is the faithful witness, or the one who always speaks the truth. Did you know that Jesus is incapable of lying? Remember when he stood before Pilate? John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is first identified as the faithful witness. Next, he's identified as the firstborn of the dead. The word prototokos speaks of priority and prominence rather than sequential order. 
of all who have been or will be resurrected, Jesus is and will always be the premier one. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the greatest of all to be resurrected from the dead. Those who have been resurrected later died. Lazarus and the son of the widow in Nain are examples. Jesus, however, rose from the grave and will live forever. He is the firstborn of the dead. We also learn that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. And yes, at his second coming, he will rule over all. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. When I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is certainly a different picture from the Jesus that came the first time. This is a king coming for the world. So in these verses, we see that peace is promised. We now know the source of that peace. It comes from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Next, we hear John giving praise for the one who brings peace. Revelation 1.5 To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The work of Christ on behalf of his believers caused John to burst forth in inspired praise to him. In the present, Jesus loves us with an unbreakable love. Listen to Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus, the one who loves us with an unbreakable love, is worthy of our praise. The greatest expression of Christ's love was when he released us from our sins by his own shed blood. John is referring to the atonement provided by the sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf of Jesus. Now let's continue. Revelation 1.6 And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now later in Revelation 5.10 we're going to read, And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This refers to our future opportunities in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And with this future in mind, John can't help but proclaim, once again in Revelation 1.6, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Next we come to the announcement of the book, Revelation 1.7-8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In verses 7 and 8, John provides the audience a preview of what will come later in the book of Revelation. These verses reveal the theme of the book as the second coming of Christ. In these two verses, we learn five truths about His second coming. Truth number one, behold, He is coming. The word behold is used 26 times in Revelation, and it's used to arouse the mind and heart to consider what is about to be expressed. And what's coming? He is coming. He is the coming one. That is a title for Christ. The Greek word erkomai is used nine times in Revelation to refer to Christ. Christ is the coming one. Jesus used it seven times in reference to himself. John declares, first, behold, he is coming. And that is the theme of the book, the coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that there are over 500 verses in the Bible that speak of Christ's coming? That's one out of every 25 verses in the Bible. John will begin and end this book with the announcement that Christ is coming. The hope that Christ will one day return was an encouragement to the original audience, and of course, it is an encouragement to all who look forward to His coming today. Truth number one, behold, He is coming. Here's truth number two. He's coming with the clouds. Clouds are symbolic of God's presence. It was a pillar of cloud that led Israel through the wilderness in Exodus 13. The cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 38. Believers will ascend with clouds at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And finally, Jesus was taken up into the clouds, according to Acts 1, 9-11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's made clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that clouds are symbolic of God's presence. And now we see in Revelation, the clouds picture Christ's descent from heaven. They symbolize the brilliant light that accompanies God's presence. Before we move on from the discussion of clouds, there is another cloud used to describe the masses of believers. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Clouds are also used to represent or symbolize the masses of believers in Christ. Now imagine, at Christ's second coming, He's going to be coming on a white horse. Following Him will be the masses of believers. What will we be wearing as believers? We will be wearing white robes and riding white horses. The appearance of Christ and the redeemed will be an awesome sight that will be seen by all. Now let's move to truth number three. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. During the incarnation, Christ's glory was hidden. Only Peter, James, and John saw it at the transfiguration. And at the rapture, not everyone will see him. 
Jesus will come secretly at the rapture and only believers will see him when we meet him, that is, when we are caught up with him in the clouds. But at his second coming, the whole earth will see him. Those who will see him are in two groups. Here's the first group, even those who pierced him. Now we might think that this group includes the Roman soldiers that hung him on a cross, but this group is not the Roman soldiers. This group is made up of unbelieving Jews who instigated Christ's death. The Jews, at the time of Christ coming again, will genuinely mourn over him. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The first group that will see him are those who pierced him and now mourn for that act. The second group is described by John as all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. These are the unbelieving Gentile nations, and like the Jews, they will be mourning. This word mourn is from the Greek word kopto, which literally means to cut. The word was often associated with the pagan practice of cutting themselves when in extreme grief or despair. And now, at Christ's second coming, this mourning will be prompted by terror. They will mourn, not for the Christ they rejected, but over their own doom. Revelation 9, 20-21 The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. During the Great Tribulation period, mankind will be shaken a fist at God, and they will not repent of their sin. And now, with the appearance of Jesus, they will instantaneously realize that Jesus is exactly whom the Bible declares him to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, and God eternal. And that is when the mourning begins. Now, truth number four. John writes, Even so, amen. The truth of Christ's return is certain. It's not to be doubted by believers. Therefore, John uses the strongest words of affirmation in the Greek. Even so, amen. And finally, truth number five. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It is God himself who signs off on this prophecy. Here's what we learn. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the alphabet. With all the letters, you can communicate all knowledge. And in the same way, God is the beginning and the end, and in Him is all knowledge and truth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is also the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. God is forever present. He is not confined by time or space. He sees the world from eternity. And as a result of seeking from eternity, he sees everything as if it already had occurred. 
He knows it's coming and that it will come. This is a promise that he will come, and his promise settles the issue. Who is and who was and who is to come. Then last, he is the Almighty. Almighty is used nine times in Revelation. It includes the ideal of omnipotence and universal rulership. When Christ comes again, he will have complete and perfect power. Nothing will be able to stop him from carrying out his will. This verse communicates that God is truly the beginning and the end of all discussion about history past, current events, and history future. What do we learn so far? Well, we know from the Bible that Jesus came the first time in humiliation. And now we see in John's opening verses of Revelation, he will come again in exaltation. We learn from the Gospels that Jesus came the first time to serve. And now in the book of Revelation, he will come again to be served. And third, we learn from both the Gospels and Old Testament prophets that Jesus would come the first time as the suffering servant. Now John declares that he will return as the conquering king. So what is the message of Revelation? It's easy. Jesus is coming. Well, if Jesus is coming, what should we do? Here's the application. It's simple. Be ready. Here's 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, dear friend. We can clearly see in the Bible that Jesus is coming. The question to ask yourself is, am I ready? Does your life bear witness to the fact that Jesus is coming? How can you get ready? Here's how. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And now from Titus 2, 11-14, I want to share three steps of preparation as we look forward to Christ's coming. Step 1. Live thankfully for the salvation you have received. Here's verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Do you thank the Lord each day for your salvation? Do you thank the Lord each day for the forgiveness of your sins? Live thankfully for the salvation you have received. Step 2. Live faithfully to God in your generation. Listen to verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do we live differently than our neighbors and friends who do not know the Lord? To prepare for the Lord's coming, we need to live faithfully. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5, 15-17. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Living faithfully is the difference between 
living foolishly or living for God. And now step three, live expectantly, knowing Jesus Christ is coming soon. Listen once again to verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you live each day with the expectation that you could see Jesus face to face? How would our lives be changed or different? How would our actions and our activities change if we thought that at any moment we would see Jesus? Listen to how Paul responded to that realization that he would soon see Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.7 I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Apostle Paul was ready. How should we be ready? Listen to Matthew 25, verse 14. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour that Jesus will come again. Be ready. It is my hope that our study of Revelation will give you new hope, a new commitment, and a new excitement for what is ahead. Always remembering, Jesus is coming. That wraps up part two of the prologue of Revelation. I'm happy you discovered the Discover the Bible podcast with Dr. James Harms. I hope you will listen to my other podcasts, including the complete study of the Old Testament book of Judges. Occasionally, I will upload Prophecy 101 episodes to share more prophecy basics, as well as answer any questions I receive through my email at discoverthebiblepodcast at gmail.com. Future Prophecy 101 podcasts will help you understand prophecy terms and major events of the last days. If you have any questions, contact me at discoverthebiblepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening to the Discover the Bible podcast. It is a privilege to teach the awesome truths of God's Word.